Good morning, everyone. Um, if you are new and visiting us this morning, my name is Brendan, and I'm part of the pastoral team here at Sovereign Grace. And if you are a visitor this morning, if you are a visitor with us this morning, uh, thanks for coming. Thanks for coming along and joining us this morning, particularly if you're not usually from a church background, that can be a big deal to come and visit a church. So we just want to warmly welcome you this morning um, to our church. We'd love to get to know you. Uh, It's not a big scary thing. Come and say hi. We'd love to say hi and see how we can serve you as, as as a local church. If you are new and visiting, we are in the middle of a series uh, on the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. It's one of the biographies of Jesus' life. And we're a church that does expository preaching, and we're so blessed to have uh, expository preaching. Expository preaching means that we don't pick topics, by and large, uh, in this church on which we're going to preach, but rather we, we work our way through books of the Bible, trying to unpack it and explain it. And the beautiful thing about that is that you sometimes receive messages that you wouldn't otherwise pick. We allow God to speak to us from his word and him to set the agenda for us, and that is indeed what we find uh, here this morning. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you open them up to Mark Chapter 6, verse 1, and I'm going to read down through to 6. Mark, chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word, a powerful word, a word that is full of life, a word that's about your son, Jesus. Lord, this morning, would you help me? Would you help us as a church as we 
open up your word. Lord, we want to understand it. We want to live by it. We want to see Jesus. And we need your help. So would you help us in the power of your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I want to begin this morning, church, by reading to you an article uh, that I just recently read. And it's titled, The Dynamite from Dapto, from the Illawarra Mercury by Desiree Savage. And Desiree writes, He's the nicest kid you'll ever meet, wrote one fan on Facebook. As the love for the 19-year-old from Dapto continues to flow on social media. Cyrus Villanoia is on fire and lighting up hearts across the nation on television's reality show, The X Factor, surviving Tuesday's live decider. The former Kanahooka High School student first wowed judges earlier this year with his acoustic performance of the weekend's Earned It. Guy Sebastian proclaiming he was exactly what they were looking for on the show. McDonald's manager James Donato has known Villanoia for years and working as a support teacher at his high school. He was one of several to give the singer a break during his tertiary studies and let him busk outside the Albion Park store every Saturday. It gives me goosebumps every time we watch him, he said. It's just unreal. He's worked so hard to get where he is. Cyrus is such a wonderful kid. You can see that coming through on X Factor, said Joe Kowalski. The reason people get behind him is because what you see is what you get. He's just a mates over on Sunday barbecue kind of guy, he said. The first time Villanoia played a solo gig was at Dapto's Little Joe's restaurant and bar. Co-owner Joel Kowalsk said they they were contacted by the muso with a link to a YouTube clip and were blown away. We instantly fell in love with him, he said. He did his final gig here before he got locked away in the X-Factor house on Father's Day. We were lucky enough that his dad got up and sang a few musical numbers with him, which was just amazing. The dynamite from Dapto. Cyrus, who you might well know, went on to win the X-Factor just last year. Now, growing up in Dapto, um, not many people make it big. It's true, not many people make it big. And so there's this huge excitement about this guy, Cyrus. My uh, little sister, Mel, actually went to school with his older brother, Jonathan. And Cyrus has kind of become this local Dapto hero. Um, drive, we were driving home the other day, actually, to visit my parents, and um, we saw this big sign, you know, congratulations, Cyrus, you know, um, Dapto is proud, or something like that, you know. Um, there's just this excitement about him, this big welcome home. Well, today, we see, similarly, the Saviour returning home. He has this growing fame, he has this now huge following, But what unfolds for us this morning is not a hero's welcome. It's one of the most tragic passages in all of the Bible. And so I've titled this this message this morning, A Gracious Warning. We've got three points this morning in this message, A Gracious Warning. 
but one real heart, one real message that holds it together, and that is that we would receive from the Saviour both a warning and a reminder. A warning and a reminder that the gospel must be received with humble faith in order to experience its saving power. A warning and a reminder that the gospel, the news about Jesus, must be received with humble faith in order to experience its saving power. Well, let's get stuck in my first point, our first point this morning, which is point one, his rejection. Well, really by way of context, uh, the last five chapters we've seen Jesus revealing his authority over and over again. And in fact, last week we saw him revealing his authority over death itself. And our passage last week really revealed these two examples of faith, weak faith, messy faith, but genuine faith in these people seeing their need and simply coming to Jesus, coming to him. Well, Jesus has left the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he's moved now towards his hometown, which is the town of Nazareth. And Mark really gives us this condensed version of a a, a bigger account, a fuller account that we see in in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, who's had this large amount of success, he's had uh, all of these, these miracles or signs that he's performed, and he's been widely acclaimed, except for in chapter 3, verse 6, where we see the, the rulers, the religious people, already plotting to kill him. And the question we're forced to ask is, as Jesus returns home, how will he be received in his hometown? And as I said, what we read is one of the most tragic passages in all of Scripture. Why don't you read with me from chapter 6, verse 1. And he, that is the Savior, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. He leaves Jairus, the the synagogue ruler's house, He gets his 12 disciples and he travels to Nazareth. Now, it's significant that he brings his 12 disciples because it shows him to be a rabbi with a following of apprentices. He's the local boy who's made it. And and secondly, it's significant because we begin to view this story through the eyes of his disciples who are watching on. And he's out to teach them. And he's out to teach us before he then goes to send them out on mission in verse 7 through to 11. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? How were such mighty works done by his hands? Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth. He comes to this small, insignificant town of approximately or no more than 500 people. 
You could fit Nazareth, Nazareth inside this room. A small town made of earthen dwellings carved out on a hilly outcrop of about 60 acres. This small town is completely insignificant. It's not mentioned in any of the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in the writings of Jewish teachers. It's not in the Talmud. It's not in the Mishnah. It's not in the writings of Josephus. And so how will they receive this local boy on his return home? And so Jesus, as is his tradition, heads straight to the synagogue, the center of Jewish worship at that time. Synagogues of that period were rectangular buildings, usually stone-walled. They had columns and tiled roofs and steps down surrounding the walls that served as benches on which people would gather and sit. And this hometown has gathered all together to hear their boy. And imagine who's there. There would have been relatives there. There would have been cousins there, neighbors, childhood friends. And Jesus begins to teach. And all eyes in the room are focused on him. Now, Mark doesn't explain what what Jesus taught, but Luke gives us some insight. We read in Luke chapter 4, verse 17, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus stands up, he reads from this scroll, the new era of liberation has begun. This new era of freedom from oppression, the coming of the Spirit-anointed King. He sits down, everyone is watching, and he says, that passage is about me. Well, how do people react? Well, first of all, we read that they're shocked. They are completely surprised. They're shocked about two things. Where did he get these things? Where did he get his words? Where did he get this knowledge and teaching ability? Where did he get this kind of wisdom? He's a tradie with no formal education. Well, secondly, they're shocked about his deeds. They begin to talk among themselves about the stories of miracles, that he healed the blind, that he healed the lame, that he healed the leprous. How about these mighty works, the things that he's doing? Where did he get this from? Well, firstly, they're shocked. But shock quickly turns to offense. Read with me. Verse 3, they say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. The carpenter, tectone, is the word in 
Greek, and it's not derogatory. It refers to a skilled tradesman, someone who worked with timber or stone, uh, like a builder or a carpenter. It's not as prestigious a title as to be a rabbi, but it's still a respected trade. It's honourable. The son of Mary. Isn't this the son of Mary? They say, yeah, this is Mary's boy, isn't it? The oldest of the kids with James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. You see, Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph, likely died many years earlier, and so Mary is more familiar. His sisters, they're here with us. His sisters had likely married off to others within the village. And the result of this, the consequence of this, as they consider both his teaching and the rumors of deeds, and then his simple origins, the result is they took offense. Literally, they were scandalized. They were caused to sin. They were caused to fall away, to take offense. That's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Well, the question is why? Like, what is the source of their rejection of Jesus? Why are they rejecting him? And the answer is that Jesus' origins are overly familiar to them. They're common. They're ordinary. They're everyday. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be the promised Savior, but he's also just the boy next door. You see, in the 21st century, we're used to believing, you know, you can be whoever you want to be. You know, if you want to be the president of the USA, you know, good for you. You can do that. Just put your mind to it. If you try hard enough, you'll get there. You know, you want to be Prime Minister of Australia. You can do it. Just put your, put your mind to it. Well, in the first century, your lot was set by your parents. And Jesus didn't obviously have kings for parents. He was the carpenter. He was just one of us. You see, they could not see past their prejudices, past their expectations. But Jesus is God become man in the person of Jesus Christ. He is God come for us. But what we see in Mark is that Mark doesn't mention Jesus' kingly ancestry. He doesn't mention the angelic revelation to Mary. He doesn't mention his birth in the city of David. He doesn't mention the visit by the wise men. Mark portrays for us Jesus simply from the perspective of an onlooker. And that is that you would have seen in appearance just an ordinary guy, no different from anyone else, fully man. He was just like them, and yet he was so much more. You see, the message of the gospel is that God has come as a man to rescue the world. The prophet Isaiah writes of Jesus 700 years before this event. In Isaiah 53, he writes, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that that we should desire him. See, Isaiah prophesied that he would be born as a regular man, none of the splendor of a king. Just like Paul, the the wardsman from the hospital that I work at, or Carlo, the, the shopkeeper at the cafe just across the road, or 
Dan the mechanic just down in Waitara. Just a regular tradesperson. If you met Jesus, you would have met a man in many ways just like any other. With dark features, with rugged tradies' hands. You could have laughed at his jokes. You could have gone and drank a beer with him. You could have gone on a jog with him. You could have just hung out with him and talked to him. He was just like a regular man. He wasn't from a wealthy lineage. He wasn't highly educated. He hadn't traveled internationally. He wasn't the disciple of a famous rabbi. He wasn't from a prestigious suburb or area. In Sydney terms, he would have been a Westie. And the result was, he was rejected. Our maker, the king of kings, rejected. And rejected by his own. When summary, Jesus' hometown fails to see that God had ordained for the boy next door to be at the center of his plan of salvation, and so he's rejected. That's point one. But now we're going to move to look at how this passage addresses us, how it should be, should inform and shape our lives. And it really addresses two distinct groups of people, which we will look at in our next two points. And the first people the first group of people that it addresses are people who are not usually Bible-believing people. People who wouldn't normally describe themselves as a Christian. And, and our second point is, is this. It is a gracious warning. You know, if someone was to ask you, have you given over your life to Jesus? Have you stopped living with you at the center of your life and have you made Jesus your king? Have you said, you know what, I'm living for Jesus? If you're honest about it, if you're really honest, like, how would you answer that? And if your honest answer is, no. I mean, you might be currently living in a Christian home, but you think, that's not for me. You might be a regular churchgoer, but secretly, you're not interested. You might be here because a friend dragged you along. You might be here and listening into this because you stumbled along this podcast. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening. This passage is a gracious warning for you from the Savior. Why don't you read with me? Verse 4, in the words of Jesus. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. A prophet has honor everywhere, says Jesus, except when he's in his hometown, when he's with his relatives when he's among his family. Those closest to me, says Jesus, don't give me honor. Those closest physically to me don't give me any respect. The English saying you might be familiar with is familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity, being over-familiar with something, breeds contempt. 
Because you see, in all of history, in all of human history, there had never been a place on earth as privileged as Nazareth. Never before. You see, Nazareth had witnessed Jesus' life up close for 30 years. And yet in this moment, they reject him. And he leaves Nazareth. And there is no indication that he ever returns. You see, you might think that growing up near Jesus would make it easy to believe in him. If only I'd lived when he did, if only I knew him personally. Well, according to Mark, that would make no difference at all. You know, there's already hints at this as we read Mark's gospel, hints that Jesus wasn't being well received, and we see it in his family. A few verses, a, a few chapters earlier uh, in, in Mark 3.20, it, it says, then, then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus had just called his disciples. He'd been healing the sick. This huge crowd is gathering and his family think he's crazy. You know, he's teaching again in verse 31 and his family again try and grab him. You see, Jesus' divinity was so hidden that family who he had lived with For 30 years, did not even know who he was. It was not until after his resurrection that his family began to become disciples and to believe in him. The question, if you are someone sitting here this morning who hasn't put your trust in Jesus, that I want you to consider, is have you squandered your opportunity to see and receive Jesus? Have you wasted it? You see, maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Maybe you grew up with parents who are not perfect, but they're faithful. They're trying to follow Jesus. And you grew up knowing all the stories. But maybe just like the Nazarenes, you're overly familiar with Jesus. Jesus, for you, has lost his shine. And glorious truths that once were amazing... They're disinteresting to you. Calvary, boring. Heard it before. Justification, big deal. Adoption, know it. New birth, so what? Resurrection, yawn. You have wasted your opportunity to know Jesus. Do you know what, to be honest, that was my story. I grew up in a Christian home with parents who were faithful but not perfect. And I grew up knowing all the stories about Jesus. I grew up knowing, going to church. But it took me quite some time to put my trust in him, to come and put my faith for myself in him. Well, if that is you, what we read next is a warning to you. It's a warning to us. And we would do well to pay very close attention to what the Savior is saying. This kind of warning should deeply trouble us. Read with me, verse 5. It says, 
and he could do no mighty work there. He could do no mighty work there. What does it mean? It doesn't mean that he didn't have enough power to do a mighty work. He is the omnipotent God-man. It means that it would go against his very nature to do a mighty work in the face of such blatant rejection. You see, Jesus' signs, Jesus' miracles, Jesus' mighty works were really things that were meant to point you to who he is. You're meant to see them and you're meant to see something about the nature of Jesus, what he's like, what he carries authority over. And because they had made up their mind already about Jesus, to perform another sign would only serve to harden their unbelief. They'd already decided that he was not who he said he was, and so for him to do another sign would do nothing to convince them otherwise. And you see, Jesus will not force his miracles onto a hostile, skeptical audience. To do so goes against the character and the will of Jesus. It goes against his character and his will to heal where there is a fundamental rejection of who he is. And he could, do, he could do no mighty works. He could not perform signs who point to who he is in the midst of such rank opposition. So Jesus removes himself from the people of his hometown. He performs no signs except Mark includes, almost as a humorous afterthought, healing a few people on the side. You know, it's as though, it's, it's almost humorous, it's as though for any other teacher, just healing a few people on the side would be a, a miraculous, amazing work. But for Jesus, it is still a removal of his mighty works. And now watch the Savior's response. In verse 6, hear this. Hear what the Savior says. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. You know, it's possible to have such unbelief that the Savior himself is amazed. It's almost as though Jesus is caught off guard by the level of their unbelief. You see, Jesus has been amazed once before uh, about the faith of others, and that was the faith of the centurion who said, just by your word, just heal my servant. But this is the only time in the Bible where we see the Savior not amazed by faith, but amazed by unbelief. Jesus is so shocked by their unbelief that he refuses to reveal himself to them. And it's in his judgment. See, the point is, it is possible to be so opposed to Christ, so dismissive of who he is, so overly familiar with the stories of his life, to be so, have so rejected him 
that he can be amazed at your unbelief. And in response, in judgment, he is able to refuse to reveal himself to you. All he asks for us is to simply come to him. Just like Jairus, the synagogue ruler that we read about last week. Just like the woman with the bleeding for 12 years. Just to simply see your need and to come to him. And Jesus puts it this way in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. He says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. All he asks of us is to genuinely seek, to genuinely knock. And what we will find is his mighty works. What we will find is him. But if you reject him, if you turn your back on him, what you will find is that he is amazed by your unbelief. And you will find yourself standing alone before God. You see, the source of their unbelief was a refusal to accept something that was so beyond their expectations. Something that just seemed like madness to them. And 2,000 years later, many people still look at Jesus just like the Nazarenes. You know, we have a different set of expectations, but the result is of these expectations that we do not even begin to investigate who he is. We do not even begin to investigate the claims of Jesus. Those expectations are sometimes set by our personal experience. Life is hard, and therefore God is distant. And so God could never be Jesus. Come for me. Maybe for you, the expectations are set by the culture of me. God, life is about me. God is irrelevant. Maybe for you, the expectations are set by atheism and materialism. The idea that there is nothing else beyond there. All that there is, is stuff. God isn't real. We take our expectations and as a result, we reject Jesus before we've even had a chance to investigate. You know, if you're sitting here today and you haven't put your trust in Jesus, throughout this, this morning, you've heard the gospel message, whether it's in our singing or in the preaching this morning, and the question is, how will you respond? Maybe you're interested. But the question is, are you seeking? Are you moving towards him in faith? Will you receive Jesus with faith or will you reject him like Nazareth and squander your chance? Well, in summary, if you're someone who is yet to put your trust in Jesus, this passage, it's a gracious warning. It's a gracious warning to you from our Savior. But thirdly, it's not just a gracious warning, it's also a reminder you see, it's not just a warning for those who are yet to put our faith in Jesus. It's also a reminder as well, and it's a reminder about two different things. Two different things that we see uh, in our passage this morning. 
Firstly, for those who are following Jesus, it's a reminder really to encourage us in mission. You see, Jesus takes his disciples with him home. And that's significant. Because in verses 7 through to 11, what follows directly on from our passage is that Jesus is just about to send them out on mission. And so for his disciples, knowing what is about to face him, he wants to, in this moment, for them to see something before they go on mission. He wants to adjust their expectations. Jesus himself puts it this way in John chapter 15, verse 20. Jesus says, Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. You know, why is it that we find ourselves so easily discouraged when mission seems to be slow going, when we seem to see minimal results? You know, when we're trying to invite our friends and we just, we just so quickly, I know for me, find ourselves discouraged. I think part of it is that we buy into this culture of now. Quick results. Little cost. No opposition. And we forget the example of the Savior. That he was rejected by those who were closest to him. So I want to ask you, how are you going on mission? Are you feeling a bit discouraged? Are you feeling a bit weary? A bit disappointed? Maybe you invited people along to the Introducing Jesus dinner and they said, "Ah, thanks but no thanks. Maybe you've been praying for a friend or a spouse or a child And there's no result. There's no fruit. Maybe you're feeling increasing pressure in the workplace because of your beliefs and your commitments. You know, we shouldn't be disheartened by rejections because it happened to Jesus. You know, I was even just reading this morning in my personal devotions in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes about how we're the, the fragrance of death to death for those who don't know Christ and life to life for those that will come to the knowledge and trust in him. For, for people as we go around, they, they see us and it's almost as though they smell Jesus. And for some of them, for some people, that's the smell of death. And, and so rejection is, is to be expected. Jesus teaches us to expect rejection. He says in John 15, they will persecute you. But it's on the account of my name. And it's on account of the fact that they do not know me. That's why they reject you. You know, we're living living in a city increasingly hostile to the gospel where issues like marriage and gender and creation and education, our city increasingly stands opposed to the message of Jesus, a 
opposed to the message of deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. But we shouldn't be afraid. We should be moved to compassion. Because Jesus says in John 15 verse 21, all these things happen because they don't know the one who sent me. Because they don't know me. Well, that's the first point of reminder for us, a reminder to encourage us in mission. But secondly, and I think even greater than this, it's a reminder of his coming rejection and death. You see, in Jesus' rejection at Nazareth, we see him firmly walking towards the cross. Jesus was born to die. You know, in Luke's gospel, we read a fuller account of how the people in Nazareth responded to Jesus. Luke writes in Luke chapter 4.28, he says, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up, and they drove him out of the town, and brought him to the, to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. Jesus reveals something of himself and his mission, and the result is wrath. There's a lynch mob, and they want to kill him. They want to completely reject him, their local boy. But the truth is that it wasn't just the Nazarenes who would reject Jesus. It wasn't just the Nazarenes who would be offended by, who would be scandalized by Jesus. But it was every single person in his life. Jesus in Mark chapter 14, verse 26, and just before he is about to be arrested and go through a mock trial and be put to his death, gathers his disciples together at the Mount of Olives. And it says this, Mark writes the following, he says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. You will all be called to sin. You will all be scandalized. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, all of them are scandalized, all of them are caused to sin, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Jesus gathers his disciples together and says, All of you will be scandalized. All of you will take offense. All of you will fall away. All of you will reject me. You see, Jesus was on a mission and his mission was to go to the cross alone. 
to go to the cross by himself, rejected by everyone. And so we see ourselves in the mocking crowds of Nazareth. We, we're just like the Nazarenes. We had, before we knew Christ, turned our backs on him, turned our backs on God. You see, he was born to be rejected. He was born into a world that is full of people who live as the master of their own destiny, who live calling the shots about what they will do, about who they will honor, about who they will spend their money and their time and their treasures and their talents on. And that is ultimately on myself, on ourselves. And because God who made us in his image, he is our owner, he knows us, we belong to him. He is our king, he is our Lord, he knit us in our mother's wombs, Because we have rejected him, because we have said, no, thank you, God, I want to be the master of my own destiny, we rightly deserve to be rejected by God, to be cast out by him, to experience his wrath, to experience his anger. For he will not let the guilty go unpunished. And so Jesus was born to be rejected. He was born to be rejected for us. And so in this passage, we see just one of the first instances where what is to come is revealed. His rejection. He'd grow up, live a perfect life, and march to Jerusalem, where not just his family his household, his neighborhood would reject him, but even his closest friends. And they would take him, though he's innocent, and they would whip him, they would mock him, and they would nail him to a cross. And on that cross, he would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was forsaken. He was rejected for us. That simply through changing our minds, changing our mind about who we're living for, making a decision not to live for me, but to live for him, receiving his gift on the cross, the death in our place, through faith, declaring our trust in all he has done for us through faith, we might be rescued. We might come to know him and enjoy him. Not through strong faith. Through faith just like Jairus and the sinful, sorry, the woman with bleeding. Weak faith. Messy faith. But genuine faith. To see our need and to come to him. In conclusion, 
as we look at Jesus' rejection in Nazareth, we are reminded of his march toward the cross. To die the death that rightfully belongs, not just to the Nazarenes, but to us as well. Well, in this passage, we not only see the most tragic of rejections, but a gracious warning and a reminder. A warning not to reject the King of glory who has come to save you. And a reminder to stand firm in mission and to remember his march towards the cross. A warning and reminder that the gospel must be received with humble faith in order to experience its saving power. Why don't I pray for us as the band comes up. Lord, this morning, how can we come before your throne but with gratitude to consider all you've done for us in going to the cross, in coming to be rejected for us? Well, this morning, I I just want to specifically pray for anyone who in this moment knows that They've been just like the Nazarenes. They've not seen Jesus. They've rejected him. They've missed who he is. And I I just pray, Lord, would you help them to know that despite past failings, it's simply through faith that we are washed clean simply seeing our need and coming to his cross. And what we find there is mercy and grace. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to treasure your cross? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.